Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Old Testament, to uh, Isaiah 55. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, welcome. I just want to let you know what we're doing. Uh, we're in a series called Seeking to Know, in which we are exploring um, the whole idea of understanding, and not just understanding, but pursuing uh, God's will for our lives. And uh, if you've missed either the first two uh, parts of the series, I highly encourage you to go online to the website and listen because the study builds on itself. Uh, so what we've discussed already is important to our ongoing conversation. And this morning I want to talk to you in more detail about uh, God's will per se, but um, before we do that, I'd like to read something for you that I find helpful. Uh, it's something God explained to the Israelites one day, in essence clarifying for them a rather important uh, piece of information. When speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God declared this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now I bring that, I bring that statement to your attention in order to emphasize from the get-go uh, how as sinfully imperfect and finite human beings, for us to think that we can somehow fully grasp the infinite mind of God uh, is, at, is at best silly and at worst exceedingly arrogant. I mean, God's pretty upfront about it, right? I mean, he says to the people, I, basically, I am God and you're not. You can't understand some of the things I do or the, the way I do them. In the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when writing to Christians in the church, he put it this way. He said, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Translation, it's impossible for us as flawed creatures uh, to thoroughly comprehend the mind of our creator. We just can't, we can't do it. It's beyond our capability. Uh, and so what can we do? Well, at best, as human beings, we can try and learn as much as possible about what God has revealed to us about himself, about his plan for our world, and about his plan for our lives, and then live accordingly. And that's, that's basically the issue I, I want to address this morning with you. What exactly can we know about the mind of God or the will of God? Before we get started, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here today. And uh, as we just sang in that song... Um, you are here. We acknowledge your presence and we submit ourselves to you. And we ask, uh, we ask you would teach us about what is right and true. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the will of God uh, is, in my opinion, one of the most confusing phrases in church world vocabulary. And yet, uh, after 26 years of ministry, let me tell you, it is at the center of one of the most common questions that Christians ask. What is God's will for my life? I've asked the question. I'm guessing many of you have asked the question because at one time or another, we all struggle in making you know, significant life decisions or at least what seems significant at that moment. Um, for the most part, I think we desire to know what is right uh, and to do what is right. And so we say, I want to do God's will. I just don't know what it is. What does God want me to do? I mean, think about how many times we've asked ourselves things in different contexts, like, you know, do I run cross country or does God want me to go out for the speech team? You know, do I, do I get a job right out of high school or do I go to college? 
you know, what profession does God want me to pursue? Uh, is full-time ministry in God's plans for me? Is it God's will for me to get married or to remain single? Does God want me to start a family? Does God want me to adopt children? Uh, what is God's will when it comes to the church? Where does he want me to go? What ministries does he want me involved with? Um, what is God's will for me when it comes to generosity? How much does God want me to give? What job do I apply for? What doctor do I go to? And the list goes on and on. And look, those questions aren't bad ones. It's just that in many cases when we, when we, when we ask them, in some respects we have this tendency to approach God's will as if, as if it's a, a divine mystery that we need to somehow unravel and solve. Or it's something that's been lost and it's our responsibility to find it. In fact, uh, there are some people in the church who have devised a number of, I'll just say, unique methods for finding God's will. For example, some people use what's called the random finger method. Do you know what that is? That's when, that's when you close your eyes and you open your Bible and then you drop your finger down on the page and you read the verse that it's on and discover what God wants for you. It's sort of like I say, oh, Lord, uh, what is your will? Do you want me to marry Margie? Plunk, plunk. You know, Genesis twenty four sixty six. He married Rebecca. She became his wife and he loved her. Oh, Margie, sorry. Too bad. I got to find Rebecca. <laughs> or, you know, uh, Lord, do you, what, what, do you want me to buy an apartment? Do you want me to rent a condo? What, or rent an apartment, buy a condo? What do I do? What do you want me to do? Plonk, John thirteen twenty seven. Whatever you're about to do, just do it quickly. You know, that's, you think, that's not really helping me. <laughs> that's not helping. Let's try it again. You know, plonk, and you keep going. Some people do that. Um, uh, others like the astonishing signs method, where, you know, people look for a burning bush like Moses saw or a, a, a blinding light like Paul experienced and figure if that happens to them, then they're going to find out what God's will is at that moment. Uh, some prefer the um, put out a fleece technique, which requires uh, putting God to the test to see what he wants us to do. There is the still small voice approach, which advocates just waiting quietly for God to sort of whisper uh, direction. Uh, there is the, um, the open door approach, which says, well, if God opens an opportunity, take it. It must be his, uh, his will for your life. Well, I don't know about that. There's also the closed door version uh, that says, you know, if no opportunity presents itself or a decision seems too difficult, it's obviously not God's will for you because, you know, God never wants us to do anything difficult, right? I was talking to a, a young guy years ago and he was looking for a job and he said, well, you know, I sent my resume to a few companies, but no one seems to contact me. The Lord just isn't opening any doors. And I was thinking, well, maybe you need to open your door, get off your butt and go make some friends and, you know, meet people, network, do your role in this, you know, and stop blaming God for your lack of employment opportunities. And um, look, I, I'm trying not to be uh, intentionally or over, let's put it overly stark, snarky about all this because... I realize there are people with good, honest intentions who use these various methodologies to try and discover and interpret God's will for their lives. And needless to say, for many of them, it can be a pretty stressful endeavor. There's a lot of anxiety uh, behind the words, what does God want from me? And so here's the first question. Can we actually know what God wants? Can we know that? Can we know his will for our lives? And the answer to the question is both yes and no which I know is going to irritate some people right off the bat or sound like just a safe answer. But let me explain what I mean. And I don't know if you've ever thought of things this way, but in everyday conversations, we in Christian circles 
uh, tend to use the phrase God's will in three different ways. Uh, in the midst of uh, confusing or tragic events, we, we find ourselves saying, you know, well, you know, while we can't fully uh, understand why certain things happen, uh, we know all things unfold according to the will of God, and that somehow, some way, uh, because of his goodness and love, he's working all these things together in our lives and in history for his glory, for our ultimate benefit. He's in control. In other instances, we may be talking to a friend who's considering a less than healthy course of action. And we think, or maybe even say to them, hey, dude, what, what you're thinking about here, look, God doesn't want you to do that. That is not his will for you. Or perhaps out of concern for somebody we know who's struggling with a big family uh, decision, uh, you say, well, you know, hey, look, I'm praying for you to know God's will in all this. In each of those situations, our reference to the will of God is used in just a slightly different sense, which is appropriate because uh, in Scripture, God's will is revealed to encompass three different aspects. The first has to do with the sovereign will of God, which can be defined as God's predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. Or to put it another way, what God wants, God gets. He always has his way. You see, by our use of the word sovereign, what we mean is that God, God is the supreme and, and, and absolute boss of things. Uh, he answers to no one. If he decides something is going to happen, it happens according to the way he wants it to happen, according to when he wants it to happen. And if you're anything like me, there are, there are times and instances where you think, well, God, what are you doing? Are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it now? Why are you doing it this way? This makes no sense to me. Over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul addresses this, and he, he, it's not so much that we may at times feel confused with God and express our confusion, but Paul presses the idea that as created human beings, we really have no right to, to seriously question God or to challenge God's authority, especially on things we don't understand and can't comprehend. He writes this to the Christians in the church. He says, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me this way? Way back in the um, 6th century BC, the king of Babylon was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and he was a pretty sharp, insightful guy. And uh, when he was contemplating this, this idea of divine will, he summed it up quite well. He said, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In a similar way, the psalmist writes, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Through the prophet Isaiah, God himself declares to the people, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have planned, that I will do. Now, I realize that some of us wrestle with this idea of God's absolute sovereignty. I get that. I've wrestled with it um, because it's just hard to wrap our brain around, you know. But to suggest that God is, is not in control of all things all the time, that he is not sovereign, is to suggest that God is not truly God. He's less than that. Uh, or as one of my favorite theologians, Dr. R.C. Sproul, points out, he says... If there exists any element of the universe that is outside his authority, then God is no longer ruler of all things. Total sovereignty belongs to deity. It's a natural attribute of the creator. God owns what he makes, 
and rules what he owns. Sproul also contends that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. Here's my point. When it comes to God's sovereign will, as most of us, as most of us recognize, God doesn't necessarily tell us everything he plans on doing or how exactly he plans on doing it or when he plans on doing it, and he doesn't have to. And it's not that God is some kind of, kind of sneaky deity, deity trying to keep it all secret from us because it's not a secret to him. It's just that we in our humanness can't comprehend you know, the end from the beginning. We can't do it. In fact, there are only two ways uh, for us to learn the sovereign will of God. The first is through biblical prophecy, which is when God in the past chose to inform us uh, uh, of what he's going to do, like send a savior, a messiah. Uh, Our second way is through history, when we actually uh, experience or see what God has done. So with that being the case, you know, practically speaking, then what is our relationship to the sovereign will of God? I mean, if we, we know God is good and that he's loving, that he has our best in mind, we talked about that last week, uh, and so to a certain degree we take comfort knowing that God's in charge. But beyond that, we need to keep in mind that our plans in life, no matter what they are, are tentative and ultimately dependent upon what God wants and what God plans to do. In the New Testament James writes a letter to the church and says to Christians, listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make some money. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Here's my Reiki translation. He's saying, with an attitude of humble submission, we need to keep in mind that everything we plan is subject to God's sovereign intentions. Everything. The second aspect of God's will has to do with what we call his uh, prescriptive will or his moral will, which can be defined as God's truth revealed or prescribed in the scripture, you know, teaching us uh, what to believe and how to behave. In short, this is an aspect of God's will that we can know. It's out in the open, man. It's out there. You know, uh, Scripture reveals 100% of God's moral will for our lives. For example, Exodus 20 records the Ten Commandments, right? These commands that God gave his people, the Israelites, telling them you know, not to have idols, not to kill each other, you know, not to lie, not to covet, not to steal, not to commit adultery, but to love him first and foremost and put time aside each week for rest and worship. You know, that was, clearly that was God's expressed will for his people. And don't misunderstand, those commands were not about, about helping the Israelites know how to be good enough to earn God's love and rescue. No, 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 no. Uh, it was because of God's love and grace, he had already rescued them. He had freed them from captivity. They just had never been a nation before. They didn't know how to, how to live together, how to survive together as a people. So these commands were simply the wise words of a loving creator who fashioned human beings uh, in his own likeness and knows what is right, what is good, what is healthy, what is safe, and what is best for them. Which is why, although these commandments were given to the Israelites, they're not limited to the Israelites. They represent God's will for all of us on how to exist together in community, to how, how to have safe, healthy, productive lives. You guys follow that? 
That's his will for us, for our benefit. In the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, we're told, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's his will for us. In the New Testament, in a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, set apart, different. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Later in the same letter, he says, rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances because this is, this is what? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than, than for doing evil. In other words, he's saying, you know, do what's right no matter what, no matter the consequences. You might suffer for doing what's right and good, but do it anyway. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're instructed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Single people are encouraged to utilize their freedom and energy to serve God in a way that married people can't. Husbands and wives are instructed to love one another as Jesus loves them, to give one another's greatest desires up for the other. Parents are told to love their children. Don't exasperate them. Uh, Children are, are called to love their parents and to respect them. Scripture reveals God's will for us when it comes to paying taxes, when it comes to obeying authority, when it comes to forgiving others, serving others, generous giving. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. He also said to his followers, go out into the world, to your local community, to your region, to to the whole world, share the good news of God's love and grace found in me baptizing as you go those who believe in me. That's what Jesus said. I mean, think about it. Scripture says nothing about what career to follow, but does tell us how to live with integrity uh, and tells us to live with integrity all the time, including at work. God hasn't told us who to marry, but does tell us how to have a healthy marriage through sacrificial love and mutual submission. We're not instructed on what road to drive, but we're told how to control our anger and to control it, which is, I think, helpful on the highways these days. You know, do you see what I'm, where I'm going on this? And I just got to say, look, I can't help but imagine that there are instances where when God hears those of us in the church kind of pleading for him to, to reveal his will to us about, about this, that, or the other thing, about which apartment to rent, which house to buy, which car to lease, what job to take, what move to make, what decision to make, you know, and that God is thinking to himself, hey, have you been baptized as a follower yet? Have you, have you loved your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Do you tell the truth? Do you give generously? Do you ask forgiveness when you have wronged someone? Do you forgive others when you have been wronged by someone? Do you pay your taxes? Do you serve others faithfully? Do you set time aside for me each week to worship, to rest? I mean, seriously, man, could we fault God if he were to say, look, <laughs> I, have, I have revealed my will to you guys in dozens and dozens of important life and relation, relational matters and you ignore me. Why should I tell you what else to do when you don't listen anyway? Here's the deal. 
Everything we need to know about the moral will of God is spelled out. It's prescribed in Scripture. The thing is, we need to read it, understand it, and then do it. That brings us to the third aspect of God's will, the personal will of God, which can be defined as God's unique design plan for each of us. Does God have a plan uh, detailed for your life? Sure he does. We talked about that last week, right? In the Old Testament, David makes this amazing declaration. He says, Lord, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Translation, David says, before I was conceived, God had a plan for my life. He authored my complete biography and wrote the final chapter before I was even born. David says, of course God has a personal plan for my life, has a personal plan for our lives. He knows... He knows what instruments we'll play, what schools we'll attend, what sports we'll choose, if we'll marry, if we'll remain single, where we'll live, where we'll work, when we'll take our last breath. He knows. Can we somehow figure those things out ahead of time? No. The only, look, the only way that I can know God's personal will or plan for my life is to look backwards. That's it, because... I have no idea, absolutely no idea, and can't know for sure what the future holds. I don't even know what the rest of today holds. I know God's moral will for my life. I know what to believe and how to behave, but I don't know for sure, you know, where God wants me to eat lunch, what he wants me to eat, or specifically what he wants me to do this afternoon, take a walk at the Arboretum, watch a movie, see a ballet, watch opening day Bears football, Pretty sure it's football, but <laughs> pretty sure about that one. But I can't be sure. I can't be positive. You know. You know what I mean. I. I can't be. You see what I'm getting at? When it comes to knowing God's will, this is where people get hung up, because somewhere along the line they've been led to believe that that they have got to figure out God's detailed will for their personal lives, which is like trying to hit a perfect bullseye blindfolded. And some people agonize over it, man. They agonize over what to do and where to go and what choice to make and their anxieties are out of control. And, and yet, yet we're not given any instructions regarding most of the daily decisions we face. We're not. In other words, when it comes to non-moral decisions, God has given us the freedom and the responsibility to choose. As long as we humbly acknowledge his sovereignty and obey his moral commands regarding belief and behavior, then all, in all other decisions, we have liberty. So here are three simple guidelines that I hope will help, help us in the way that we approach decision-making, at least get us started. Guideline number one, in matters specifically addressed in Scripture, in other words, the revealed, the prescribed commands and principles of God's moral will are to be obeyed. No exceptions. Guideline two, in areas where Scripture gives no specific command or principle, i.e. non-moral decisions, we are free to choose our desired course of action. And as long as that decision does not violate the parameters of God's moral will, that choice is acceptable to God. He's good with it. Guideline three, in regard to these non-moral decisions, our our objective is to use wisdom in making good choices. Here's an example. 
I use this example because I had to go, I went through this and early on in my, my Christian life, I, you know, I was just freaking out about the will of God. I mean, it was driving me buggy. So, uh, I've got better, you know, but, uh, early on, uh, I had to make this decision. Say I was deciding what graduate school to attend. Well, you know, scripture says acquiring knowledge is a good thing, but there's no command. There's no moral imperative for me to go to grad school, right? I'm free to go if I want. I am not free to cheat on my entrance exam or lie on my application because God calls me to honesty and moral integrity. If I apply and I get accepted, I'm not free to look down my nose on people who don't go to grad school as if I'm superior because God calls me to humility and to love and compassion and kindness and sacrificial servanthood. Uh, If I need to take a student loan in order to make grad school happen, that's fine. But I can't just default on that loan later on because God calls me to pay my debts in a timely fashion. See, God's moral will is clear. I know what kind of student, what kind of person he wants me to be. I just don't know what grad school he wants me to attend or whether I should go or not at all. You know, Does God have a plan? Sure, he has a plan. And if I decide to go and I get accepted, let's say, at multiple schools, should then I expect sort of this personalized revelation from God in which he gives me the name of a specific university he wants me to go to, like through a thunderbolt or something? Well, well, no. No, instead, I can ask God for wisdom in making the decision that I am free to make. And within the parameters of God's moral will and with the application of wisdom, that personal choice I make will be acceptable to God and hopefully work out the best for me. In fact, let's, let's talk about wisdom for a second. I don't think any of us in the, in the room would argue the fact that God has revealed an enormous amount of information and direction for our lives. Through Scripture, God speaks both generally and specifically to so many experiences and issues we face. But when we encounter those areas of life where God has not given any instruction, then what we need most is wisdom. What is that? Well, biblical wisdom... I tell you what, is intensely practical. It's not theoretical. It's the art of being successful, of forming the correct and appropriate plan of action to gain the desired results. Wisdom takes insights gleaned from the knowledge of God's moral will and applies them to our daily uh, experiences. And that's why, that's why in the Old Testament, the writer of Proverbs says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding than silver. Or... Know that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there's a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Over the New Testament, James writes to the church and says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Later in that letter, he says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Here's my Reiki summary. When it comes to making decisions in non-moral areas of our lives to which God's word does not specifically speak, our search shouldn't be for, the, for God's personal will, which we cannot know, but for the wisdom that God offers to make the decision. And next Sunday, we're going to take a more in-depth look at exactly how to acquire that and apply that wisdom in making those non-moral decisions. I think you're going to find that helpful. 
And, you know, overall, though, I don't know how you guys are feeling about all this. Because um, I tell you, you know, early on in my life, I, was, I would bug out about the whole will of God. I've got better. You know, for me, over the years, it's really, it's really not that mystical or complicated anymore. I've realized it really isn't. God is loving. He is good. He has our best in mind. And his desire is not to confuse us or send our anxiety or stress levels through the roof. It's relatively simple. To understand and discover God's will means we humbly accept and recognize his sovereign authority, which results in listening to what he's already told us and doing what he says. And then it's out of this context of humility and listening and obeying that God grants us wisdom to make the everyday decisions of life. And then we need to make them and trust God with the outcome. Live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we all recognize that life uh, has its confusing moments where we face um, simple decisions and where we face major life-altering choices. And um, in some of the matters we face, Lord, you've you've been clear with how you want us to live. You've told us what is right and what is good and what is healthy, what is safe, what's productive for us as human beings. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust you that as our creator, our sovereign creator, you know what is best for us. And we would submit ourselves to your will in that sense and we would would follow after and obey what you and who you've called us to be. And those areas where we're still not clear and you really don't speak, you give us freedom to choose. We ask for wisdom to make good decisions. And then we trust you with the outcome. I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, in our finiteness to better understand this whole topic. Um, and may it be because we want, we want to do what is right before you. And we're thankful that that you love us no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, you know, we we talked about the will of God. And one of the things we talked about specifically was how how we may need to redefine our idea of goodness. We talk about God is good, but we usually talk about God being good when things are going good for us, right? So goodness for us means it's good for me. But... um, is God good even when things go bad for me? When we talk about God's love, love meaning, you know, I get what I want and I'm happy and comfortable. And, and if I don't, then God doesn't love me. Well, really? That sounds like an immature child speaking. And so we have to wrestle with this idea of God's goodness and God's love as it applies to our lives and experiences. We talked about on, that on Sunday, and I talked to you specifically about God being good no matter what. No matter what. And uh, by Tuesday morning, my father-in-law was dead. Is God good then? Is God good when we get that call? And I thought about, well, Lord, I told everybody in the church that you were good. Do I believe that? And I do. In fact, death would only be unfair if it didn't happen to all of us. But it does happen to all of us. In fact, that's this experience this week made me think of the, the, the very thing that James wrote. You know, he said, what, who, what is your life? You're, you're a vapor. Here one second, go on the next. 
Which is also why scripture calls us to decision making now, today, because we don't know what tomorrow has for us. Scripture refers to the day of decision or the day of salvation. It's the idea of making the decision of what you believe right now. Don't put it off. What do you believe? Religious people say, well, I believe, you know, if I am good enough, if I can prove myself to God, um, if I can just be more generous, I can be a a better person, uh, then I'm going to be okay and God's going to, I think I'll be okay. God's going to let me into heaven. That's what religious people say. What Christianity says is we realize we can't be that good. None of us. We all fail. We do. And so we need the grace of God in our lives. And that's what Jesus brings. Jesus came and lived the life we could never live. He died the death we all deserve to die. And it's through faith in him that we're forgiven. That is the plan of redemption. That is the plan of salvation. That is the plan of rescue for our world. And look, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an accidental plan. It didn't just fall into place accidentally. In fact, you know, we started this morning reading Isaiah 55, right, where God says, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. And uh, three chapters earlier in that same book, God was describing for his people his plan of redemption. 700 years before Jesus was born, God said, I'm going to send a Savior, a Messiah, And here's what he's going to be like. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then get this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Long story short, Jesus' life and death was no accident. It was the unfolding plan of God's, God's will and plan for, for our world, and for our, our rescue as human beings. Which is why when Jesus sat in that room with his closest friends the night before it all took place, He broke matzah and he shared a cup of wine and he said, this is going to unfold. You know, I'm offering my life for yours, for the world. And he said, you know, this broken matzah represents my body given for you. The cup symbolizes my blood shed for you. This is no accident. It is the plan of God. This is God's plan for us and our world. The question is, do you believe it? And today is the day of decision. Don't put it off. Trust me when I tell you, don't put it off because who knows what's going to happen today or tomorrow or Tuesday morning when you wake up this week. Let's pray and prepare for sharing these elements.